0: Hello, thanks for listening and joining us on the Be Yourself, Happy, Healthy, Hopeful podcast. I'm your host, Steph, a health promoter from the Bulimia Anorexia Nervosa Association here in Windsor, Ontario. On this podcast, we explore topics related to health, mental wellness, and creating a happy, healthy, and hopeful life full of opportunities for yourself. Today, my guest is registered social worker, Sarah Dalrymple. Sarah is one of our clinicians at BANA who works with clients during their treatment. She grew up in Windsor and graduated from the University of Windsor with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Honour Psychology. Sarah went on to achieve her Master's of Social Work at the Wayne State University and had the incredible opportunity to work with other Windsor not-for-profit organizations, including CMHA and Mental Health Connections during her time as a student. Sarah arrived at Banna in 2018 to cover a maternity leave, and in 2019 was offered a permanent position. Sarah is a valued member of our team. She has brilliant ideas on how to make our organizations better and cares deeply about her clients. On a personal level, Sarah is inspired by her goddaughter, Ariana, and she loves traveling the world. Sarah plays recreational soccer and volleyball and loves animals. Sarah volunteers with the Windsor-Essex County Humane Society on weekends. Her ultimate passion, however, is working towards the wellness of our community, particularly through mental health initiatives. Today, we will be diving into what working as a social worker in the field of eating disorders is like. We will discuss how the treatment process works in hopes of informing those with questions or worries about beginning the treatment process. This episode is meant for the public and clients to gain a richer understanding of treatment at Banna. We truly hope this episode is informative and helps those who need it. Let's get into it. Here's my episode with Sarah Dalrymple. All right, so we're gonna get going sarah thank you so much for being here with me today i know you're such a busy lady (laughs) well thanks for having me (laughs) yeah absolutely um before we get started i was just going to give a little disclaimer about unexpected sounds that we might be experiencing today during our convo we do apologize um we're operating in COVID times and trying to maintain a social distance while completing this and um You never know what might come through. (laughs) So I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there. Um, So let's get into who you are, Sarah. I did intro you prior to um, starting this today. Mm -hmm. And I know you're a very accomplished lady and do a lot here at BANA. So from your mouth, who are you and what do you do? So
1: I'm Sarah Dalrymple, as I'm sure is included in the intro. Um, I'm a clinical therapist here at BANA. Uh, So I engage clients who have a diagnosis of an eating disorder in cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders. Um, I've been with BANA for about two and a half years. I started in June of 2018, covering an 18-month maternity leave and was blessed to be kept on as a permanent clinical therapist here at BANA. Um, so that's a little bit about me. I guess outside of that, I have passions that stem for mental health. You know, mm-hmm. my background, working at CMHA, Windsor-Essex Community Health Center, MHC, um, as well as with animals as well. Um, mm-hmm. I really volunteer a lot with animals, both locally and abroad. Um, so I guess yeah. I, I guess if you're gonna ask me who I am, I'd just be a caregiver. <laughs> as yeah, an overall. that's a
0: great yeah. uh, overall term to describe you. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm. I'm thankful that you did touch on those things outside of work because those are still a big part of us. And I think even the work we do here at BANA, it's especially important because we talk a lot about what keeps our mental health in check, Mm -hmm. those things that feed our soul, that are self-care for us. So I'm glad you touched on those too. Mm -hmm. Um, So my initial question is what led you to social work and was it always eating disorders for you?
1: no so uh, social work was not even my initial goal when i started university i started in psychology thinking i was going to go on to get a phd in psychology um, but one thing i didn't realize was psych tends to be very research-based like the journey in academics is very research-based and i'm not a fan of in doing research i like to read about research um So I heard about social work and I started to kind of uncover a little bit more as to the difference between psychology and social work and found that social work is a lot more hands-on in many ways um, and that there's a lot of variety in career choices for social workers. I mean, any organization or business, there's a social work somewhere on staff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what caused me to kind of switch over to social work and I guess overall the stemming passion was I do have a lot of family members with mental health diagnoses, and I've seen a lot of struggle from that end, and I've always kind of had this interest in it, Um, and so that's kind of what led me to psychology, which led me to social work. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't always an interest in eating disorders. I think it's really hard to learn about eating disorders unless you're specializing in it. Um, You don't hear too much about them in programs, you know, like when you go to university and you're taking a class on mental health diagnoses, they only touch on it briefly, Um, and you know, you don't often hear people getting training in eating disorders unless they're interested in working with them. Mm -hmm. So when I started at Banna, I started fresh out of graduation from my master's degree, Um, And I got my specialization when I had already been hired here.
0: Right. Um,
1: My passion before that was really focused on mental health diagnoses like depression and anxiety and schizophrenia. Um, And eating disorders always felt like a really unfamiliar and scary territory to go. Um, But coming at Tabana, realizing what it takes and, and learning more about eating disorders, I'm very glad that I did because this is definitely a passion that I've developed being here and hope to continue to work with throughout my career, both at Banna and maybe one day outside
0: of Banna. Right. Yeah, it's definitely one of those more specialized areas, and I think that additional training is very much required if you are working with this population because there's those ins and outs that you don't necessarily get with that overall arching like master's degree mm-hmm. um, if someone did I think this would be valuable to our audience because we don't know who's listening but there's they're probably interested in mental health so if someone did have an interest in gaining more training related to eating disorders what are some avenues that they could take or is there anything that comes to mind for you
1: hmm well um, I guess, depending on what kind of credentials academically they have. Usually we would see social workers, psychologists, um, that tends to be in the mental health field who would be working with them. You know, we have dietitians who work with eating disorders. We have nurses, physicians, a lot of um, professional realms do, mm-hmm. you know, have their fingers in eating disorder work for training specifically. We do highly recommend um, cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders. They've kind of enhanced the classical CBT to address eating disorder concerns more specifically. Um, And there's two versions of that. There's a 20 session one, and then there's a 10 session one that's a little bit newer. Um, Other than that, I would recommend family-based therapies. That's typically the approach that, Um, individuals working with adolescents take when they're addressing the eating disorder. They tend to be very FBT focused. Um, And one thing I find that would be super valuable that I don't think most people recognize going into the eating disorder world is a background in trauma therapy and really getting more specialized with trauma. Mm. Um, One thing I've realized and one barrier that's kind of come up as a clinician here is feeling not well equipped all the time to handle the complexities of trauma within this population
0: Mm -hmm. and i know some of the education we do um we do say you know eating disorders there's not a specific cause right there's a lot of things involved but trauma could be an individual factor that might be at play and i i wanted to talk about that a little bit more but i'll I'll save my question (laughs) i still just want to do a little bit more of a preface about you so um i know that the work here is likely you know very rewarding but also difficult at times when working with individuals who have an eating disorder um so if there's some things that stand out for you I, i was curious about this what might be the most difficult aspect for working with someone through treatment or uh, what do they find most difficult? Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to flip it and say, what do you find most rewarding as well? Sure. So definitely
1: working within this population, what I find difficult is the level of complexity. There's it's, it's not just psychological eating disorders have a very medical component. And Mm. so coming into it with a mental health background and not a medical background, I'm finding myself having to learn more about you know, the role of a dietitian and learning more about nutrition or learning about more medical aspects and having to read blood work and things that I never thought I'd expect to do in social work. Um, So that was, I would say that's definitely one of the difficulties with working with this population is just how much knowledge you kind of need to address it as a whole. Um, Because there's so many different levels
0: of care involved with eating disorder work. Mm -hmm. that's such an important point to make because actually that's not what came to my mind initially Mm -hmm. but it's so true right and also important for those maybe who have an interest in eating disorders, something that they need to brush their skills up on Mm -hmm. and then so what do you love most about the work or your job it's kind of funny because (laughs) it's the same answer the complexity I have this
1: just ongoing passion to learn and learn and learn and in eating disorders you just you never run out of opportunities to learn more and because it's such a complex population you end up developing skills almost every day with every new client that you have Mm. Um, and you're constantly challenged and you're constantly learning about something that you never thought you'd learn about so it's kind of this great opportunity to stay engaged and stay passionate. It's not really one of those things that you can just get bored with because it's not the same thing every single time, you know. It's, yeah. it's There's so many different layers to it that it keeps things interesting always. So I'd say that's one of the rewarding things about working with this population is feeling like I'm constantly growing as a professional.
0: Mm-hmm. That's important. Variety is stimulating to the brain, right? Yeah. So that's awesome. I love that. Um, is there anything of your time working in eating disorders that it has taught you that you didn't expect would come of this?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, taught me about myself or would you say about the profession? Or
0: um, Initially, I thought this as more of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you can answer it li- to your discretion. <laughs> um,
1: I guess it's really kind of taught me my own limitations and, and, mm. and really taught me a lot about patience. I think um, when you work with something like depression, you know things take time, but you tend to see results maybe a little bit quicker. Um, whereas with eating disorders, there's a lot of patience that goes into it, especially more on the kind of physical side of things, um, and body image can take a really long time for people to work on and, and start to really see improvement in. So it's it's one of those things where there's this delayed gratification and these delayed benefits and delayed outcomes and you know, as a hard worker, always being very, um, driven, you're kind of driven by those positive outcomes and you, you know, you fight really hard or you work really hard because you want to see the results and working with eating disorders, you have to really have a strong level of patience because those results will come, but they're not going to come right away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know that that's, um something important you brought up because it was, it brings to mind something else I wanted to ask you Mm -hmm. because in preparation for this, you kind of filled out a little form for me to inspire my questions. And, um, you did note that that change piece is really difficult and uncomfortable and you have to implement a lot of patience. Um, so what else do you think, is important for people to keep in mind if they were to embark on a recovery journey. Mm -hmm. That patient's piece, is there anything else that comes to mind?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean... We just talked about the patients piece and clients you know, come in and they're really eager to get involved and get engaged in the programs, which I think is fantastic. Um, but sometimes we ask them to do these behavioral changes that are really uncomfortable or really distressing, right? It's something that they typically would avoid, something that causes them maybe a lot of anxiety. Um, and we basically ask them to trust us, to say, you know, here's what we're recommending, here's what we are gonna guide you through but the outcomes are gonna take some time, right? So these, these clients come in kind of blindly trusting us and hoping that those benefits do come one day, right? And so mm. patience for sure is something we recommend to clients coming into programs, um, because like we said, outcomes take time. Our body takes time to retrust us. Our body takes time to adjust to what we're doing differently. Um, and one thing that you know, we see clients struggle with a lot is sitting with that discomfort. Right and not trying to escape it, sitting in these emotions that nobody really wants to feel but are really important for us to feel, like anxiety or distress or you know frustrations, and not feeling like we have to act on them. Yeah, just kind of sitting in them, learning about them, exploring them, what they mean, what they're trying to do for you, um, and having that patience for you know that silver
0: lining that's coming. Mm Hmm. Yeah, feeling those emotions is not always easy, and I would assume. In fact, I know that it takes a lot of strength to even get through the door here too and then have to feel those emotions. It could be likely quite overwhelming and difficult at times. So that's what the clinician is there to do, to guide you. And um, that's why it's okay to get help sometimes because it makes that process a lot easier too. Yeah. So because um, we're living in the COVID era, we have implemented some virtual sessions here at Banna. well, we were forced to <laughs> everyone was <laughs> oh yeah, everyone was, and we adapted quickly. I know that was all a big toll on our clinical team just because that's not the norm, right um so was there any um interesting things that you learned along the way when it comes to virtual sessions Um, and then i also wanted to ask a little bit about the specific considerations that maybe came up for someone with an eating disorder during this isolation period and um, what we're going through right now absolutely
1: well virtual therapy is kind of you know a blessing and a curse um, you've got a lot of benefits to it. You know, I can wear sweatpants at my desk and see a client if I really wanted to. They wouldn't see my sweats, right? Um, but its I think it's really beneficial for clients to be able to access services from home in a safe space that they already feel comfortable in. Like you said, you know, moments ago, it can be really difficult to come through the door and come into a space they're not familiar with or comfortable with. Um, have their weight taken, you know, talk to someone that's still a relative stranger. So I think it's kind of taken down some of those barriers to accessing services. It's allowing people to be home and still receiving treatment. Um, Barriers to virtual, of course, are things, uh, a lot of them are related to body language and and not being able to fully see a client um, and their physical reactions to the discussion. I think a lot of our communication is based on body language so i might be able to see a client's shoulders up but i can't necessarily see their posture or how tense they're getting right and so it is a little bit limiting that way Um, and then of course really dependent on the internet and how the internet's flowing right Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a very unpleasant thing as a clinician to be hearing somebody's really difficult story that maybe they've never told anyone before and they cut out and i don't hear any of it and i have to ask them to repeat themselves it's a really uncomfortable place to be um, so those would be i'd say the main limitations to virtual is really depending on technology.
0: Yeah, yeah, technology is great until it's not, and it's not working appropriately. I know I've ran into that too, um, during our virtual presentations, and there's only so much you can do right there it is what it is, um, but in that position where someone's vulnerable, I, I could imagine it's difficult for both of you, like the person. Telling their story and then also you receiving it—that's mm-hmm. not very fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Oh, Sarah.
1: sorry. I was—I had that last bit of the question right about um, how COVID nineteen is impacting right. eating disorder clients, and you know, one thing to keep in mind is that when we have an eating disorder, we're likely engaging in disto- disordered eating behaviors. And a lot of our immune system and the strength in our immune system comes from proper nutrition, right? And so Mm -hmm. when we have an eating disorder, we often see many clients who have low functioning immune systems. So that puts them more at risk to COVID and and some of those negative outcomes. Um, But beyond that, in regards to coping with their eating disorder during quarantine, Uh, We've seen a lot of spike in mental health in general, but in eating disorders as well, is that these individuals are trapped in their home around food, and they might be more likely to turn to food to cope with some of the stress of what's happening in the world, Um, but also boredom, right? Being in the home around food and you're bored all day because you can't go to your typical places and you can't live your typical life, food's there, right? And so it can often make symptoms a little bit more intense uh, or more frequent.
0: Yeah, yeah. The circumstances are kind of like that perfect storm that we talk about where, you know, even also if you don't have support at home and you are completely alone and then food is staring you right in the face. um, And then not to mention all the stress, perhaps it's financial or or health related. It's just all of these factors really add up and are cumulative on that person. And um, there is unfortunately more concern for this population during this time. So our hearts are with everyone out there if you are going through that because it's not easy. Okay, so the whole purpose of this specific episode really was um, to educate a little bit more on the treatment process at BANA and some of those specific questions that we get when we're out in the public. And we're really hoping this helps people if they are considering starting treatment or just reaching out to Banna because they think they might have an a um, eating issue, so I'm gonna go over some of those if that's okay with you mm-hmm. in hopes of helping people, but I'll start at the beginning in terms of what our clinical team looks like so who's on the clinical team, how many clinicians and or who else is there
1: yeah so on-site at Banna, there's six people on our clinical team currently, um, but the clinical team, if we look at it as a whole, I would say there's about eight of us. Um, so those on-site, we've got four clinicians here, three of whom are full-time and one of whom is part-time. Um, we have one intake specialist who basically filters everybody in um, and directs them where they need to go, and we have a dietitian who works with our clients. So that's who's on-site. Um, But we have the uh, benefit of having two professionals in the community come in to consult about clients, about diagnoses, about any kind of complexities that we're struggling with. Um, One of whom we see every week, her name is Dr. Jose Jerry. She's a psychologist in the community. One who has probably the most experience in Windsor-Essex with eating disorders in, in terms of psychologists. Um, and we also have a physician, Dr. Alexandra Figaro, come in about once a month to consult about medically complex clients. So they really help to guide us um, in areas that maybe we don't have expertise to make sure that our clients are getting comprehensive care.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great that they're a resource to us as well. Um, so if I, I'm gonna act as if I don't really know the answers to these <laughs> questions. I do work here, <laughs> um, but it's just, this is, these are the questions we get, so let's do it. Um, But if I were to call Banna and I was, you know, maybe skipping meals quite frequently and had a little bit of concern, felt overwhelmed, um, maybe my weight fluctuates, so I make that first call, um, what would then, who would I speak to and what would kind of that process look like in the initial steps before I got diagnosed.
1: Sure. So I mean we have the centralized intake line here in Windsor Essex, which is fantastic. So if you do have eating disorder concerns, there's one number you call, whether you're a child, adolescent, adult, um, and you'll get connected with our intake specialist. Currently that is Dana Dupuis. She's been here I think almost eight years. Um, And she's really transformed the intake department. She's honestly just one of the hardest working people
0: here. I don't know how she handles it all. We sometimes Um, say when we're out in the public, um, 1-855-CALL-DANA. Yeah, (laughs) it really
1: is. I mean, she she handles so many clients at once, and she does it so gracefully and so passionately. She's very inspiring, I find. Um, So that's who you would likely be connected with, um, and she would have you fill out... Uh, an intake form which basically asks your basic demographics, it asks for consent to contact via phone and email, Um, and it basically asks just a general idea of the concerns that the person's facing. Um, And from there, Dana will decide if those concerns sound, you know, somewhat disordered in the realm of eating disorders, and she would schedule then a full specialized eating disorder diagnostic assessment. which would then be the next step in regards to getting involved. Mm-hmm. Right? So Dana kind of screens everybody coming in. Um, if it is a teenager or an adolescent, they are referred pretty immediately over to Teen Health Center, um, one of our community partners. And if they are a child, so I believe under the age of 11, they would be referred over to Regional Children's Center at the hospital. So RCC, another community partner. Mm-hmm. So Banna takes on all the adults um, for 20 and up.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. So then I come for that initial appointment with Dana because she does think, okay, this client um, is worthy of, you know, looking a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. And then at that appointment, I am assessed, right? So what happens there? Sure. So the assessment appointment
1: can take, you know, up to two, two and a half hours. Um, So the first hour about is more of an interview style so first she would ask about demographics um, then she would go into a day of eating so trying to get an idea of how this person has been eating over the course of the last six months right we like to look at somewhat of an expansive uh, or expansive time frame so that we have a comprehensive idea of any changes that might be occurring in someone's eating Mm -hmm. Um, so we have them go through their typical day of eating for about six months we look at symptoms, so we try to assess, you know, the typical eating disorder symptoms or any, you know, more unique symptoms that could be happening, such as binging, vomiting, the use of laxatives, diuretics, diet pills, um, driven exercise, um, dieting, fasting. Right? Some of these things that we're trying to assess for, and also understand how frequently they're occurring, because that will, mm-hmm. of course, you know, have an impact on a potential diagnosis. Um, So once we learn a little bit more about symptoms, we might explore someone's social functioning a little bit, um, their body image a little bit, and then kind of wrap the interview up with a pretty in-depth onset. So we kind of ask about their upbringing, how, you know, their parents interacted with food and body, Mm -hmm. um, any kind of peer influences, traumas that may have happened, abuses, Essentially, where did this kind of concern begin, and how did this progress over the course of somebody's life? Right. And once we've you know completed that interview, we have the uh, clients go into a separate room to complete some um, measures. So we have them complete some questionnaires that help to kind of further assess somebody's um, mental health and well-being, and also um, other traits and characteristics that might. Point us to the eating disorder diagnosis.
0: Mm, okay. Yeah. I think that's good to go over because there is initial worries or this is why people don't reach out for mental health help because they don't know what they're going to be asked. They don't know what to expect, especially if this is the first time seeing some, a health professional. Um, so yeah, that was really helpful. I think just lessening that unknown mm-hmm. kind of eases though that initial anxiety. Absolutely,
1: and we're, we're entirely voluntary here at BANA. We're never gonna force someone yeah. to go where they're not comfortable. Um, but keeping in mind, the questions that we ask are, are very pertinent to understand someone's full picture. Um, and helps to guide us not only towards the proper diagnosis, if applicable, but also the proper treatment plan for that person. So sometimes the questions we ask are uncomfortable, the client doesn't have to answer them, but the more honest and open a client can be, of course, that's gonna help us really tailor the treatment and the programs to that
0: person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, important note to make too. Okay, so you mentioned before the specialized treatment that we use, CBTE. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about what CBT is? So it's Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Enhanced for Eating Disorders, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And why do we use this?
1: Well, CBTE has been researched probably, you know, one of the most researched therapeutic modalities for eating disorders. And what has been found is that it's in terms of outpatient adult settings, Uh, CBTE is the leading evidence-based treatment for treating eating disorders. Um, So really generally, you know, people who don't really know what cognitive behavioral therapy is, it basically looks at your thoughts and your beliefs and kind of the cognitions that you might have in a day, um, some of your behaviors as well, and your moods. And it kind of looks at those three things and how they influence each other. Um, and can cause each other, right? So strictly, I mean, CBT definitely takes into account behaviors and that's a very important thing that's discussed and and worked with, but we really try to uncover some of the maladaptive thinking that could be going on that's driving those behaviors and resulting in those emotions, right? So we kind of take this comprehensive approach Um, and the research that they're finding and as well as with our clients is it's about, two-thirds of our clients who go into CBTE go on to make an excellent response, mm. right? So it does have really good outcomes in terms of recovery. Um, and it doesn't have to be too, too in depth and too, too long, right? It's 20 sessions over 20 weeks, usually, right? It's kind of different for every person, um, but the research has shown, and as well as our clinical experience has shown that it's, it's very helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. for people. Mm-hmm. So I kind of jumped the gun there, but I just want to go back and say, so after that assessment, if they were diagnosed, mm-hmm. um, this is the type of therapy that they would then begin with one of our clinicians at Banna. correct? Exactly. Okay. Right.
1: So after a diagnosis, uh, the clinical team meets to, or sorry, after the diagnosis, I meant after the assessment, Yeah. the clinical team meets and kind of discusses this client's case and the onset and their symptoms, and uh, a diagno- diagnosis is given by our psychologist, um, and a treatment plan is developed by everyone on the clinical team. So it's what's fantastic about that is you have this whole you know table of professionals who are making decisions for the client's well-being based on their expertise, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's one really strong benefit to BANA is that we have this multidisciplinary team that's you know so interested in the well-being of our clients. Um, And so if the client receives their treatment plan as CBTE, um, they would get started in some of our programs right away, which we call skills trainings, um, which are essentially groups that we work to develop skills in other areas that can support recovery, right? So it might not be tackling the eating disorder symptoms head on, but these are things that we've seen contribute to symptoms or the intensity of the eating disorder. So if we can minimize those right from the get go, uh, then we see better outcomes in CBTE. Mm-hmm. So CBTE, once it gets started, you know that's when we get really in-depth with disordered eating and body image concerns.
0: Mm-hmm. And those skills trainings, those are only available... After you've been given the diagnosis, correct? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not because they are skills that are great for, you know, even if you didn't have an eating disorder, I think they're really good for coping and um, managing your mental health. But I just wanted to make that clear, too, to people because... It's not an open door. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right? yeah. I
1: mean, I think they're fantastic programs. And if people are interested who don't have an eating disorder, there's a lot of similar programs in the community at some of our partner organizations that could address some of those concerns, right? So, you know, it's not that we're trying to close the door and not help, mm-hmm. um, but we, we have created these skills trainings strategically to help with the eating disorder recovery. So they are
0: specifically for diagnosed BANA clients. Mm-hmm. And it gets the ball rolling too. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you also mentioned that the sessions, usually around 20 sessions, and um, in those sessions, can you give us a little glimpse of types of things you might cover um, when going through treatment? Absolutely.
1: Well, I mean, we could break it down. You know, CBTE is broken down into four stages. Each stage um, addresses different areas of the eating disorder that um, are all pertinent to the recovery. So stage one, we meet with clients two times a week. Um, and the reason we meet two times a week is to really establish a lot of change. Research shows that the most change uh, outcomes are can be predicted within those first four weeks of treatment, right? So we try to get as intensive as possible right out of the gate in order to maximize those recovery outcomes. Um, so those first four weeks are quite intensive. What we really look to target is reducing symptoms and educating on eating disorders and symptoms. Um, we help to try to demonstrate how all of these involved factors can maintain the eating disorder over time and they act in cycles. So we kind of draw this map of the eating disorder and all these kind of co-occurring factors. Um, and in it, we, you know, stage one, we really develop tools to overcome urges for symptoms. Um, and we do a lot of work at regulating eating. So that's probably the main focus of stage one is trying to get somebody on a regular eating schedule. Um, all the while the we get them started with those self-monitoring logs where they're recording their eating in a day and their thoughts and emotions and situations that are happening. So that way we can kind of get this full picture of everything that's going along. Oh, 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 oh. Happening around the eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's stage one. Stage two is we kind of move to once a week appointments where we kind of review how treatment's been going in that first month and really try to problem solve anything that's not going well. Um, and then we plan for stage three, which tends to be a lot more individualized per client. So stage three, we continue with once a week for um, about up to about session number 17. And in stage three, that's where we do the body image work. So we really get to the bottom of body image. We explore thoughts behind body image, uh, checking and avoidance behaviors, comparison making, mirror use, um, mind reading. We really t- target a lot of things that kind of contribute to body image because it's a big umbrella and incorporates mm-hmm. a lot of different things Um But we also in stage three, we might work a lot more with maladaptive thinking, right? So we look to shift our thinking to be more objective, more rational, more balanced. Um, we target moods if that's appropriate, right? If somebody's really struggling with emotion regulation or tolerating those uncomfortable emotions, we help train them to get more comfortable with those uncomfortable emotions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, we might address things like perfectionism, low self esteem, or interpersonal relationships as well. And it's going to be dependent on the client's needs. Mm hmm. And then that last stage of treatment, which is stage four, we move to biweekly, so every other week. So you can see over the course of treatment, it becomes less and less frequent because mm-hmm. we're trying to put recovery into the client's hands. Um, so that way they can maintain it for life without having to come to a treatment program. Um, So in stage four, we talk a lot about triggers and identifying the eating disorder, you know, cues that that to say that it might be gaining some strength again, or there might be some setbacks that are occurring. And we show clients and we train clients on how to problem solve those things for relapse prevention. Um, And then after session 20, a lot of clients start to get nervous. They feel like they're about to get discharged or they don't, you know, they may not feel ready So what happens then is part of treatment is this planned five month break. So it's essentially this five months after treatment, um, which research shows clients are the most at risk for relapse in those first six months after treatment. So Mm. we kind of structure it into treatment that it's this trial and error period. Go with the tools and the skills that you've developed and afterwards you're gonna come back to us. You're gonna meet with your clinician and your dietitian at the same time and you're gonna talk about how it went. And if you still need programming and support, We come up with a new treatment plan, Mm -hmm. right? I think that's one thing, you know, I really want to stress to clients who might be interested in coming to BANA is we don't disengage with clients unless we're confident they have all the tools that they could possibly need to target their eating disorder and engage in recovery fully.
0: Mm, Yeah, that makes me feel comforted mm-hmm. because yeah that that five month period I would be like okay I, you know what I'm gonna work on this by myself see how I do but I still have you know that link mm-hmm. that you know I can come back that's really comforting I think absolutely and absolutely. what about if you were in treatment yeah. and you're in stage two and you were just you know maybe other circumstances caused you to feel very overwhelmed it wasn't a good time for you and you decided oh I want to um And right now, does this sometimes happen and can that person rejoin at a a different date? Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, it happens a lot. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it happens a lot. Life is uncontrollable and unpredictable. That's just the nature of life. So we call, I mean, there's a couple options for, for clients who might be going through that. I think it depends on what's happening in their personal lives or in, you know, other areas of concern. So we kind of, you know, the clinician will talk to the client about what's happening, their situation, and and try to kind of get an idea of time frame as to how long the client needs before they can re-engage in eating disorder treatment. So if the client, you know, it's situational and they can kind of get it figured out in a couple of weeks or a month, then what we would do is pause CBTE. So what that means is you're, let's say you're at session number 10, you're paused at session number 10, and when you come back, you start at 11. Mm -hmm. After, of course, a booster session where we kind of we don't count it technically. We'll, we'll review everything, get you back on track, and then we'll start from 11. Um, so essentially a pause is the client stays connected with their clinician. The clinician checks in as much as they agree upon, as well as the dietitian. So their place in treatment doesn't go anywhere. They're not going back onto the wait list per se. Um, they're not being discharged. They're kind of just the sitting file for about a month. So we max that pause at a month um, if the client and the clinician feel that the concerns might take longer than the month, there's two options that this route could go. The first is they could return to the bottom of the wait list, rise back up, and start over from session one when they reach the top. And that, that'll usually give them a couple extra months to you know figure out maybe these other concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, if a client feels like the concern is, is much larger and is gonna take a significant portion of time to resolve, then we might look at discharging the client and welcome, welcoming them to contact our intake department when they're ready and at a stage in their life that they can fully engage,
0: mm-hmm,
1: right? Yeah. So we're always welp- welcoming people back. I mean, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to see clients that we had seen in the past and then we had to discharge or, you know, life came up and got in the way. It's very common that we pause clients, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, we try to be as flexible as possible with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is an element of... You know right timing and readiness i think when it comes to mental health so that's also a good thing to know
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely
0: um and then you also mentioned our dietitian nicole is our current dietitian here at bana so um how does it work am i seeing my dietitian in parallel with my clinician and is there ever sessions where i'm seeing both of you at the same time yeah,
1: I mean, yeah. This is where I, this is where it gets hard because everything's <laughs> so unique, right? So typically, and I, I stress the word typically, uh, clients would be seeing the dietitian in parallel. So they'd be having sessions with their clinician while simultaneously having sessions with the dietitian, right? So, like when I said about stage one, you'd be seeing your clinician two times a week. Sometimes you might hear, be here three times a week if you have an appointment with the dietitian scheduled too that week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so usually clients access up to about seven appointments with the dietitian in addition to the 20 sessions they'd be getting with their clinician, right? Mm. Uh, depending on client needs. Some people need her less, some people need her more, okay. um, especially maybe some of the more medically complex clients. We tend to pair them more with the dietitian. Um, And sometimes, you know, depending on client needs, sometimes the dietitian and the clinician decide they're going to team up and see the client together. Um, It depends on how much kind of comes up in a session. If I find myself having to talk a lot in my sessions about Nicole's role and, and, you know, food and that component, then I might bring Nicole in. Um, But Nicole has that same experience. I'd say in Windsor-Essex, Nicole's probably like the most well-versed dietitian Mm -hmm. in counseling because you know, a lot of her role is, you know, managing the emotional aspects or the thought aspects or the life aspects that come up, right? We can't ask a client to only talk about food with the dietitian. Yeah. Um, so she's very well versed in kind of counseling almost. And so sometimes if we find that that's an ongoing pattern, then we might try and target it together by having joint sessions.
0: Yeah. Right. And that's like you mentioned before, the beauty of having a multidisciplinary team and being also in one space because sometimes people are seeing a clinician here and then maybe seeing you know a nutritionist or a dietitian somewhere else this is truly client-centered care and everyone's on the same page and has the same goals for the client which is really nice absolutely and i think one benefit you know to Bana that i see
1: is we have weekly rounds so at least once a week if not twice um, we're all meeting and consulting about client cases, both new people coming in um, or people who are currently active. So it's, you know, you're not just getting this multidisciplinary perspective at your assessment. You're getting it every week, anytime a concern comes up. And if your clinician feels this might be something to bring to the team, they will. Right. And yeah. so we're constantly consulting about clients and, and constantly thinking about how to improve their care or tailor their care better or thinking about referrals we can provide. Um, so it's really fantastic because th- our team meets and we have really great communication. Everyone's always on the same page about all the clients that are here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think it's quite fantastic that we have that opportunity.
0: Mm hmm. Okay. So we're throwing a lot of information at you, listener. (laughs) So um, I do, um, no, I'm not going to apologize because you're here to listen and learn, but um, take a break if you need to and come back to it. But I think it's all super valuable. Um, So sometimes we do get asked when we are out in the community, community doing health promotion, people will say, oh, I'm really nervous. Can someone come with me? Has it ever been a case where you did have someone's loved one in the room or some form of support? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. So the, again, ban is just such a flexible place. Um, definitely, we encourage clients if they are comfortable coming to session on their own, we definitely want to have it more of this individualized treatment where the person's holding themselves accountable and able to kind of calm themselves down if they're feeling anxious. Um, but we definitely welcome support persons in session as long as there's advanced notice given. We do have to have, even if it's somebody's mom, let's say, uh, we have to have them sign consent. So we need advance notice for that. Um, and so if someone's really nervous, especially at intake, it's very common for people to bring support persons. And that support person can wait in the lobby and they're also welcome to come into session. Um, even beyond that, we offer education as well, right? If someone... You know, is really struggling educating their family on what's going on. We very much welcome their family to come in and meet with us and ask us questions and, you know, help them to understand, you know, their loved one's eating disorder and what is happening in treatment and what some of those change expectations are. So it's very common that we, you know, are engaging the support people. Um, Because, you know, relationships in our environment play a really big role in the development and maintenance of an eating disorder. So if we can get everyone on board Mm -hmm. um, and everyone aware of, you know, the circumstances and the, you know, triggers and these kinds of things, then it's going to make recovery easier for that client. And that's what Ban is all about. Um, so absolutely it wouldn't like again it's a very common thing that we welcome people
0: coming into session oh that's good to know too Um, and sometimes there might be a preference for certain clinicians I'm sure that has come up how are those instances dealt with can you choose your therapist or are you just allotted a therapist and that's who you stick with
1: So it's a a little bit more of a complex question because Mm -hmm. if, let's say, you knew the therapist from the community, because Windsor-Essex, I mean, we're a big city, but we're a small city. Everyone seems to know everybody. um, And it wouldn't be, you know, I've known many people to come through the doors here. Uh, but for reasons related to conflict of interest, if, you are, you know, if your clinician recognizes you from a personal level or you recognize them, then you wouldn't be accessing that clinician. And that clinician simultaneously would not be sitting in on rounds when your case is discussed. Uh, so we take that very seriously, uh, conflict of interest, and we make sure that a client is only paired with a clinician that they don't know personally. Um, so they would not be able to choose, oh, that's my you know, friend, I want to work with her, that would not be an option here. Um, if a, clini- a client is returning to us and they had worked with a clinician previously here, they might also have the option to work with that person again, just because of that therapeutic alliance and that there's already mm-hmm. an established relationship there that's professional. Um, and it helps the client not have to retell their story. So in that case, yes, they might have more selection over their clinician. But because we are a nonprofit and because we operate with a wait list, there's not much flexibility there, right? So we typically discourage clients from, you know, trying to select their clinician. And if a client is really resistant to that, um, we kind of take the approach of saying, you know, let's overcome these differences. This is a learning opportunity, right? You can learn to get along with people you're different from. we don't want to you know lead this very separated lifestyle here where people can kind of choose who they like the best and that's who they're going to work with um, because that can be tricky territory and so Mm -hmm. we really encourage clients to stick with the clinician that they're given Uh, of course unless it's a serious concern in which case bringing that to the executive director of banna who handles all questions and complaints Um, But if it's just something like, oh, I don't really like the person or, you know, I don't really vibe well with them, we typically discourage that. We just don't have the resources to accommodate everybody's preferences.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's completely reasonable, I think. Um, And does it ever happen that someone might be seeing a therapist or clinician elsewhere for whether it be for their eating disorder or for something else? Or that's just their preference to have, you know, a maintenance appointment with someone is that... Um, encouraged, allowed. How does that? How's that handled?
1: Absolutely. So, I, like we we've been talking about, eating disorders are so complex that most of our clients would be engaged with other services in the community. Um, so we're definitely always working harmoniously with other professionals who are involved. But of course, it depends on the level of um, intensity of the work. Right? If somebody is actively involved in treatment, seeing somebody once a week. Then they might become overwhelmed with so much treatment, yeah. right? We we kind of call that treatment burnout, where it's the, not fun for the client to have five sessions a week with all these different therapists, and it's also a lot dif- more difficult to focus on eating disorder recovery when there's all these other things that are already underway. So we try to be more harmonious and and strategic with that. If someone is more actively involved, um, but typically we don't see it as a uh, something that's going to keep them from engaging with us fully right so we might lessen how frequently we're seeing a client to accommodate the other therapist or vice versa um, and we try to open lines of communication between the therapists. so we will seek consent from the client so that the therapist can touch base and harmonize so that there's not repetitive information going or contradictions happening either um, and that really, again, that just helps bring all the therapists on the same page for the client's care. So we definitely open lines of communication to make sure that we're dealing with the eating disorder and any other professional is dealing with their realm and, and, and those, uh, topics. And we try not to have too much
0: overlap there. hmm Okay. Good to know as well. Well, we're full of information today. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And I'm sure this happens because we do live in a very multicultural city. So what if you don't speak English or maybe your English isn't very um, advanced and you feel comfortable speaking in another language? Do we provide any services um, for translation or in other languages? Yeah, so we definitely
1: have had translators come in for languages that are not English or French. Um, We've had translators in sessions who of course have to sign consent, so we absolutely do our best to accommodate language. Um, But we do have uh, French-speaking or Francophone workers here, right? Our dietitian is Francophone. um, And I believe two if not three of our therapists are also Francophone, so versed in French. I am not one of those therapists. I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. I'm just stuck with, you know, old English here. But um, we do have, uh, we do really have a great team uh, who are trying to incorporate more and more French resources as well. So we work well with English and French. And if if it's beyond that, if it's a different language, we do our best to work with translators.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I will note that all of these services are free. So if you are a client of BANA, then um, we are funded by the government through the Lynn and the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, as well as we accept donations and we apply for grants occasionally and we do fundraising. So that is something that I think puts many people at ease that this is a free service too.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, did I miss anything regarding treatment or did you want to add anything? Because Mm -hmm. we did cover a lot, but um, to wrap it up, maybe... Um, If there's anything you wanted to add or anything we missed?
1: Um, I, I think the most important thing to add is because we're voluntary and because we're outpatient, clients do have to kind of take that responsibility of recovery on on their own, right? Mm. It would be nice if we could follow our clients all day and, and, you know, give them this encouragement and be their cheerleader on the sidelines every day, but we don't have that availability, right? That's a higher level of care, like inpatient or residential. So this outpatient setting, you might be meeting with your clinician once a week for an hour. All the other hours in the week is up to the client to really commit to the tools and the changes um, and keep themselves accountable to those things. So keeping that in mind is that we we really encourage clients to take responsibility over their recovery um, because change won't happen in the office. It's going to happen in their day-to-day life, and they're going to be the ones who are responsible for applying those tools.
0: Yeah, that's right. such an important aspect of this, I think. I'm glad you added that because there is so many more hours in the week, really. (laughs) Yeah. And that element of responsibility really really needs to be at play. Absolutely. Um, Okay. And then I just want to go back to one thing because we didn't um, elaborate on it earlier, but we did touch on trauma. And I know there's multiple things um, that can contribute to the development of eating disorder. But you mentioned you needed to get a little bit more comfortable in, in that area. Um, can you explain a little bit more about how trauma might influence one's ability to cope and maybe even you can um, discuss in reference to eating disorders if, if you feel like that's pertinent?
1: Absolutely. Um, well, trauma is, is, is a complex thing, and we're learning a lot more about it in research, um, and there's a lot more you know therapies that are coming out to address trauma. Um, what we see commonly in regards to trauma here at Banna uh, tends to be abuse. Um, specifically, we see a lot of history of sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and physical abuse. Um, that was one thing starting at Banna that really caught me off guard and I think was very surprising was just how many clients have that history, right? Mm. I, I just never thought, you know, everyone kind of coming in might have anxiety or depression or but this this history of complex trauma or abuse is very common, significantly more common. At least, you know, I would say, if I had to put a number on it, definitely more than half of our clients have that history, if not close to 75% of them. Um, And so, you know, trauma being this complex thing that not only affects somebody's emotions and thoughts and, and behaviors, but also just how their brain works biologically, right? Especially if the trauma occurred when the brain was still developing. Um, So this can impact the eating disorder treatment in so many different ways, right? If somebody really struggles with, let's say, regulating their emotions because of their trauma, right? And because of how their brain is now structured because of the trauma, um, then they might find it really hard to sit with those uncomfortable emotions that happen in treatment that are inevitable. Um, And they might be more likely to try and escape those uncomfortable emotions because they can't handle them, right? And so they might use symptoms like binging to distract themselves and shut their brain off or purging, right? Um, So trauma can definitely make symptoms a little bit more intense and a little bit more frequent. Um, Also, body image can be this huge component that when we start to look at body image, we tend to uncover a lot more trauma stories because especially in the nature of physical and sexual abuse is your body's the vessel in which you've been abused through. Mm-hmm. And here we are opening up and talking about your body and you may not have talked about your trauma before. And this is opening kind of this, we've literally had clients call it this Pandora's box right? yeah. of things they didn't think they were going to have to get into and things that they likely will have to get into uh, either with us to some degree or with another professional in the community in order to fully under overcome this eating disorder. Right. Especially if it's driven by this underlying trauma. Right. So we're yeah. finding that trauma has this very, very, very dynamic and complex relationship with eating disorders. And, you know, I could talk about this in a whole podcast yeah. of itself. Um, but one fascinating finding that I'll kind of wrap up this discussion is with that, you know, how trauma affects the brain. Right. I think we're learning more yeah. about that. And I think it's quite fascinating that very, very really Realistically, the brain, the composition of the brain and how the brain processes information is drastically changed when someone's experienced trauma. Um, so it's not a matter of just getting over it. Yes. Right? And so it's, it's something that, you know, if someone has this complex history that's been untreated or, or unaddressed, of course, treatment could take longer, right? We might have to look at referrals. We might have to look at doing more in-depth work than just the CBTE. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so traumas um, very much we're finding related, uh, not only the eating disorders though. I really want to caution it's traumas behind a lot of mental health. And so I would recommend to anybody getting into the field of mental health, to do their best to get some trauma experience because it's, there's a lot more coming out about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so interesting. Um, and it, for me, it brought to light, um, the need for more compassion, too, when it comes to mental illness and mental health, because I, th- I still believe out there there is that stigma, and it's because people don't fully understand how this isn't a choice, and at times there's things that have happened in an individual's history that are at play and influencing brain development or brain, brain chemistry, and... Um, I know, like I've heard that memories can be stored in areas of the brain. And then, like you said, like that, that box is open. Um, So it's really, I think there's still a lot of education and compassion that needs to be practiced in mental illness in order to help eliminate more stigma in our world, um, because it's not a choice. And sometimes these people don't even want to be engaging in a certain behavior, but mental illness has led them down that path right Mm -hmm. so it's definitely something that needs more attention and I know people in the community are working hard to bring more awareness to mental illness so that's great too yeah absolutely I'd say any compassion
1: and just if you if you don't understand listen that's all you need to do
0: that's a great point yeah okay so um I'm going to just end with a few more kind of light questions. Mm-hmm. All right, <laughs> hit me with them. Yeah, so when I was preparing for this, I asked you just to describe yourself in one word that you used and I can definitely relate to and I think a lot of healers and uh, health professionals might also relate is that you describe yourself as an empath and um, for those that don't know that's someone who's more maybe sensitive to others emotions and you can elaborate if you want but why did you describe yourself as an empath and then how do you think this helps your work?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, oh my gosh, if you were trying to be a social worker or a therapist without empathy (laughs) <laughs> You're not going to do a great job. I'll be honest, because, you know, I, to some degree, I might have my own life concerns and my own problems and struggles, but I don't have an eating disorder. Right. And and I don't know exactly the experience of anybody else other than myself. Right. So if I can't empathize with their perspective and I can't empathize with what they've been through um, and try to put myself in their shoes as best as possible, right, then, then what do I have as a therapist if I can't try and put on their thinking cap and try and see the world through their eyes, right? And it's, it's not you know always just about being able to relate to their emotions, but trying our best to understand their experiences if not relate to them, right? And so empathy is, is something that is so crucial, I think, for this line of work. Because um, like we just talked about, not everybody understands it. They say, get over it, just eat, you yeah. know, just lose weight, go on a diet you if you if you can't understand the struggle behind that right um you're not going to do good work I'll be Mm -hmm. honest you won't really be an effective clinician yeah um and so it's something that is a skill you can of course develop the skill but a lot of people are born with it innately and so being able to relate to people and try to see them and see their perspective of things can be difficult but it can also be really rewarding because that's where the good work gets done
0: yeah, that's a great answer. Um you also described on my intake form <laughs> that positive body image makes you feel think of acceptance. So why did you choose that word? Oh yeah. Sorry. I threw oh, that yeah. one. Out.
1: <laughs> no, that's okay. Body image is interesting because I think coming in to therapy or anyone who wants to improve their body image, I think what they aim for is body satisfaction, and I feel like that's really unrealistic because whether you have an eating disorder or not, everybody has some area of Mm -hmm. themselves that they're not in love with, right? I think it's really unrealistic to expect to love every inch of yourself because that's just not normal. Anyone who says that they love themselves from top to bottom and there's not a single part of them that they see as a flaw or as, you know, an insecurity... I want to meet these people because I haven't met any of them yet. Um, So I say acceptance because it's more about accepting your body no matter where it is, right? Whether it's big or large or small and and dainty, right? Tall, short, you know, no matter where it is. Finding this way to appreciate it and to um, get inspired by it and to accept it for the way that it is. That's where happiness is, right? We see clients who say, you know, if only I was 10 pounds smaller, I'd be happy. And then they might get 10 pounds smaller and they're still not happy, right? So acceptance is more of a broad thing where you can love yourself no matter where you're at, right? And it's it's kind of, we say, it is what it is. You know, body acceptance is looking at yourself and going, this is what I'm given, this is where I'm at, and I'm okay with that. It is what it is, right? Rather than looking in the mirror and trying to convince ourselves we love every square inch, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so what it's all about, really. Is and But it's not easy to get there, but okay. I am totally on the same page as you. I That's what I preach, too, is... Acceptance versus you're not going to feel good every day. It's, it's just a matter <laughs> of, of fact. <laughs> yeah. Listen, if
1: everybody could love their bodies and feel good every day, I'd be out of a job. Okay? <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if that's realistic to, to strive for.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I totally agree. Great answer to that. And um, because the name of our podcast at BANA is um, Be Yourself, Happy, Healthy, and Hopeful, I always end my episode by asking my guest, what are you hopeful for going forward in 2020? And that can be personally, or that can be for our community, for our world as a whole. It's really up to your discretion how you want to answer.
1: Mm-hmm. Well... At Banna, we are in the process of developing a lot of things. We're really trying to pump resources onto our website, such as an FAQ to answer all of these same questions about treatment. So, you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed with this podcast, you can go online and read, reread about it, right? Um, so, I've been working on that with our clinical team, and we're hoping to get that up by the end of the year. Um, in you know, more of a broad scope, you know, personal and worldwide. I think. Covid and the nature of Covid, specifically in the realm of mental health, I think it's kind of forced us all to learn how to cope um, and learn how to reflect on ourselves and improve our lives in, in ways that are really difficult and that we typically would avoid, um, but kind of don't really have much any any other options right now with the circumstances of the world. And so I think you know, Covid being this this thing that's that's quite terrible, and and I, I feel for the families who've been so much affected by it. Um, but the silver lining being that, you know, we're talking about mental health more. We're talking about our well-being more. We're talking about ways that we can continue to live a quality of life, even if we're trapped in our homes. Um, and so I'm hopeful that that can really help to turn around this stigma that we've had forever on mental health. Right. Because so many people are affected. And I think, you know, it's really becoming in the spotlight now, mental health as as COVID numbers are going down Um, mental health is the next pandemic. And so people are already talking about it. Um, There's all these amazing services that are coming out because governments are pumping money into mental health finally. Um, And so my hopes are that we start to see more and more change as, as 2020 goes on and 2021 comes up.
0: Yeah, and that's, before we know it, it's going to be here. I can't oh, believe it. <laughs> I know.
1: What happened to 2020? I don't know. Yeah. I can't believe it's almost 2021.
0: Yeah, that was a really good um, answer, a unique answer that I haven't heard yet to that question. So, um, But it's so important, and I, I think you're right that we're, at some point, this is going to need more attention from um, those that run our country, and... Um, it's going to be facing us. It's just, it's about time, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that you brought that. And I think um, that was an excellent end to this episode. Mm-hmm. I'm really um, grateful that you were able to sit down with me and take the time to share all of this knowledge with our uh, those who listen, whether you're interested in coming to Banna or you just wanted to get more information about CBT, I'm really glad that you tuned in today. Um, thanks again, Sarah. Thank you for having me and thank you everyone for listening. Yeah, and if you are looking for more information, um, as Sarah mentioned, we are working on resources every day to try to educate you through our website and that is www.banna.ca. You can also find that intake line that Sarah was speaking of earlier in this episode. It is on our website, or you can reach out through our website and fill out an online intake form. So you have lots of different options. Um, Go check it out and learn a little bit more about BANA and about eating disorders. Thanks again for listening, and we will check in next time.